This is the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. Doug, how are you? I'm doing good, Bob. How about yourself? I'm I'm doing well. Uh, we're coming up. Uh, I think this podcast right now, as we record this intro, it's a few days before Easter, but I think this is going to come out uh, directly after Easter. So I'm wondering for you, uh, how are things shaping up for this weekend? How are you feeling? Yeah, well... Uh, it's Easter. <laughs> it's that. Well, it's it's the Super Bowl <laughs> yeah. of Pastor Weekends. Yes, it is. It is. I pressed my suit, found the greatest looking bow tie I could know. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I think I'm feeling, I'm pretty excited about it. We're doing something a little bit different this year. Um, my co-pastor, Ben, is such a brilliant guy. And we are feasting uh, and teaching and worshiping all together. And so we've got, he's, he's just helped set up this really brilliant liturgy of um, some awesome time in worship, followed by a brief teaching that leads us into a feast, a celebration, resurrection feast. Mm. And then we're going to sort of talk about a few other things and end in another time of worship through song. So I'm, I'm excited that we're doing something a little bit different. Um, but it's also like, uh, you know, Ben and I were talking the other day. It's like, there's just a lot of moving part. I think that's just it. Easter is great, but there's a lot of moving parts to the week, you know? Yeah. It feels like there's a little extra pressure. Yep. And on top of that, it's like, how do I, how do I preach a message, which I've preached over? It's like, this is such an important one, but, uh, I've, I've, I feel like I've said everything I have to say yeah. on, you know, and, and then you feel guilty for even feeling that way because it's the most important <laughs> message of all. And it's like such a weird, the holidays are so weird for pastors, so yeah. much pressure. And, uh, yeah. Do you ever feel, uh, let down afterwards? Do you, yeah, you know, you feel that, that post big Sunday letdown? Yeah, that's great. That's a great question. I, I think I, I would say, and this is, you know, to some of our holiness friends, this is going to sound really bad, but I feel hung over. <laughs> I feel mm, like yes. there's that sense of, oh man, I just feel off. Like I probably just need to need some Pedialyte or a Gatorade and maybe yeah. a quick nap and I should be, should be just right. But it does, there is that feeling of we've worked this hard and, and maybe there's a little bit of guilt there. Like I've worked so hard for this particular event or this particular thing. And then it comes and goes. And then the next Sunday comes and you're like, Oh, how it's almost like how this one feels different. It's the same kind of stuff, but like there's mm. something about that particular day that just yeah. really has a way of I don't know. It just sucks. It it feels like it's takes something from you. And yeah, I, you, you articulated it well, Bob. It's, it's that this is a sermon I've preached a, a ton of times. It's, and then I feel guilty because I feel that way. And, you know, how do we make the gospel feel new? <laughs> you know, how do we, yeah. how do we honor this, this time? How do we also recognize that in our particular culture, you know, there's a lot of people that are coming to church to then rush off to family meals where for, yeah. for my family, it's like, you know, all our families a couple hours away. So we just come home to our ourselves and just sit around mm -hmm. and watch the masters, I guess this year, I'm not sure, but, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, how, how about you? Like what, what did it, what does it feel like for you on that next day after that huge 
Sunday after Easter? Uh, yeah, for me, it was, it, it always was a little bit of a, of a, of a letdown. I think, I think you're like, you're, uh, the adrenaline is up and you are hoping that some of the special things that you have planned will land correctly. And, you know, and it doesn't matter if it's a great Sunday or if it didn't go well, there's still going to be that physical kind of, I'm exhausted. I'm tired. I just want to. I just want to crawl in a cave and sleep. Mm. And I, I, and so I think for those pastors who are listening, let's just affirm that let's normalize that you ought to take a day off. Mm. If you're not taking today off, you should probably take it super easy and not have a people day at all. Um, but yeah, the mm. times like that, I, I think one of the things that I thought about early on in my pastoral career was, um, I didn't want to, I, I ended up at a different place than I started. And where I ended up was I didn't want Easter Sunday to be more than one degree different than regular Sunday. I didn't want to crank things up so high uh, that those who, who might come that week, if they did choose to come back on another week, they wouldn't be confused as to like, where's the circus that they had? What there was a bouncy house. Why is everything so boring now? What is going on? Like I wanted it to just be like one degree more, not, not not crazy. And I think that really helped. I think that really helped in terms of the energy level. And like, we weren't putting so much into this, into this one Sunday uh, that we were just wiped out for weeks and weeks. So, I mean, getting under the surface of, of, and I appreciate that because I think you named a lot for a lot of people in that, but why, why was there that movement in you to just make it one degree higher other, other than like, you know, I don't want people to come back and be like, why did they pull out all the stops for that Sunday and not this Sunday? But is there, yeah. were there other internal processes happening yeah. that could have led you to that? I mean, philosophically, what it came down to was I, I, began to understand that what you win them with is what you win them to. Mm. And so if we were dependent on a big show on particular during particular events or something, that was kind of setting the bar of expectation yeah. for people. Like I want them, I, I want them to be won by the warmth of the community, not the quality of the media. Yeah. I want them to be warmed by the message of the gospel not our amazing drama or dance or uh, liturgical flag waving on a particular Sunday. You know, I I, I yeah. wanted them to be won by the right things. Yeah. And so for me, it was like, yeah, Easter is special. We'll, we'll do some things a little bit differently, but we're not going to crank it up so high that there's a cognitive dissonance, dissonance if someone chooses to come that week and then the next week. Yeah. You know, I want them to understand that even what we do on Easter, even if, if, if it is a little bit special, there's still a continuity Hmm. um, between the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that sounds right to me too. I, and I think there was also, this is probably immaturity on my part, but there was this thing in me that, that working at a larger church saw this major push, right? Like Mm -hmm. it was this 
you know, your regular 60 hour week moves to like a 90 hour week and your, your, you know, rehearsals and this and that. And I think you just see all this work and you think what, yeah, who is this real? Like, is this really for, is this really for the formation of people is, or is it so that we can hopefully see the numbers rise? And so there, there probably was a space in me that had to let go of some sketch, some cynicism Mm. towards the holidays. Yeah. Um, and then I think almost like re-embracing the beauty of Easter and the simplicity of it, right? Like that's kind yeah. of the cool thing is this is the story that we tell ourselves every week when we show up to the table, mm. you know, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come mm. again. This is mm. the story. This is central to who we are as people. Um, and so Easter is just the day where we do feast and we celebrate mm-hmm. that because this is the day that we recognize that the, the worldwide church is celebrating. And I think, I wonder if that's also the other key shift is when you are a church that doesn't see themselves as part of a global church, hmm. do, does it just feel like we have to make this thing really special where in, instead it's like, no, we're observing this with, with hundreds of thousands of other, you know, millions and billions of other believers worldwide who are celebrating this today too. So I wonder if that's also part of, part of what, what really can make it a special day, but throughout anyway, throughout the whole Holy week, do you have a favorite space or a favorite part of that, that just really grabs grapples with your soul? Uh, I mean, man, I've always, I, I have always loved Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. I, I love those, um, I, I love those kind of down moments because they are so countercultural, hmm. uh, not just to, not just to the culture at large, but even to evangelical American culture. Yeah. Um, I, I remember going to one of the first big articles I ever wrote that got any kind of traction that people noticed was don't forget to grieve. Um, and it was spurred by, I was working at a large church and I went to the Good Friday service and it was all upbeat. It was about, uh, it, it was like, um, yeah, this was bad, but we know what's coming. And mm. m- my whole thing was, yeah, but they didn't know what was coming. Right. They, they, for them, and this was really formational, I think for them, uh, for the first for the disciples, for the first Christians, they didn't know what was coming. And so Easter came as, uh, not just, I mean, it was a huge surprise. It was, it was a relief. It was a revelation. And I think we rob ourselves of some of that. If we forget to grieve on good Friday, Mm. Easter doesn't land like it should. Mm. Right. Like if you Mm -hmm. don't, if you don't fast from sweets during Lent, Easter candy doesn't really mean anything. Yeah. Right? Amen. Yeah. If you, if you don't grieve on Good Friday, Easter loses some of its impact. And so for me, just having those kind of really, really quiet, meditative down, ending in darkness kind of Good Fridays and helping people understand, yeah, on Saturday, don't, you know, just take it easy. Think, mm. use that space for meditation, use it for quiet. Uh, and mm. then Easter, I think will begin to mean what it, what it's supposed to mean for us in that, yeah. in that liturgical calendar. Mm. 
Yeah, I I think you're right, Bob. And it almost feels like for pastors, maybe Holy Saturday should be flipped over to Holy Monday. Mm. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe that's the day where our soul needs to just be quiet in the tomb. And yeah. And I I just I was thinking about this today how just the fact that Jesus rests in a tomb for a full day. Like I feel like if it was me planning the surprise of resurrection, Mm-hmm. It's like they would have taken me off the cross, you know, wrapped me up, and then I would have jumped up and be like, just kidding, like, I'm alive, guys, it's cool. But I I really appreciate how uh, the church observes a, a full day in that Holy Saturday of, of yeah, of grief and yeah. wonder in a, right, like a lot of times I think we use the word wonder as this all in wonder, but I feel like wonder on holy saturday has much more of a minor tone much more of a melancholy yeah uh, feel to it where it's like i wonder what tomorrow is going to bring yeah. like i've lost everything yesterday <laughs> today feels like the worst moment of my life and what mm-hmm. will tomorrow bring and what, what i appreciate is what happens in the resurrection is we see tears present first and foremost yeah Right, like that's all. I don't know. Sorry, I just no. That's to me, great, that, man. That feels powerful. I I uh, think I think we should have. I I think you're onto something. We should have a special uh, Monday after Easter holiday just for pastors, and w- I I don't know what we'll call it. And in fact, I'm sure the liturgical folks are way ahead of us. They probably already have a, a name for that day. I don't know what it is. Maybe somebody can email us and let us know. But think of it this way. Rather than a day of of wondering and grief, I love Jr.'s um, his his kind of mantra of uh, the the tomb is empty, the pressure is off. Yeah, like what if pastors were to take the Monday after Easter and metaphorically sit in the empty tomb and think yeah. about what that means for them and for their ministry? That this tomb is empty, so the pressure's not on me, right? Yeah. We, we know how this whole, th- the, the whole, the end has been written. The pressure is off me. I just have to l- follow the spirit, listen to his voice and do what comes next. Yeah. You know, the weight of this yeah. thing is not on my shoulders. Yeah, that's interesting. Because I, I think that pressure that a lot of pastors feel on Easter is, you know, yeah. well, it's this time there's these visitors and we, we, you know, maybe, you know, hopefully they'll get saved. I'm only going to get one crack at them. I'll get one. And it's like, how many people did Jesus save on Resurrection Sunday? Right. Like how many people That's did Jesus point. save yeah. on Resurrection Sunday? It's like, it's just interesting because his proclamation was done at his yeah. death. And then his proclamation was passed on to his disciples with the, with the coming of the spirit. And so I think there's something about that pressure being off. It's like, Jesus didn't seem to live into that pressure. I remember hearing a sermon years ago. I think it was Rick McKinley. He was talking about how Jesus had like a bad PR guy where like, I would have showed up in the Super Bowl with the whole world watching and he just like shows up to a couple hundred people. But yeah. Anyways, I, yeah, pastors, we know we're just so grateful for the work that you've done and just realize that even if it feels like you put in a ton of work and there wasn't a ton of response, man, God's smiling on the work that you put in, but he doesn't love you because of your work. He loves you mm-hmm. because you said yes to him. And I think there's something about that that is just good to know. So yeah, I hope today as you like finish listening to this podcast, you actually rest, like take mm-hmm. your 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 nap enjoy that time and space of just 
being grateful for the work that was done and being grateful for the work that you put in and trusting the spirit to complete the work that, you know, that, that you partner with him in. Our guest today is writer, editor, and content strategist, Hannah Nation. Um, she currently serves as the managing director of the Center for House Church Theology and as the content director for China Partnerships. She's published in Christianity Today, the Gospel Coalition, and By Faith. Her topics of interest are urban Chinese house church movements, uh, print and digital textual com communities, uh, historic global Christianity, and the history of women and the church. Um, I, this is one of those interviews for me that has just sat with me for a long time. Uh, she has a way of really helping people see what the church globally is thinking, but specifically the house church movement. And so I hope that you enjoy this conversation with our friend, Hannah Nation. Well, welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor. Hannah, it's good to have you on. Um, yeah, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I currently live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, I always, if I'm going to give people a short answer on where I'm from, I always say Pittsburgh. Um, but I've actually lived a lot of places. I've lived in, I, I always lose track, but I've lived on three di different continents. We'll put it that way. <laughs> so if you want the long answer, I'll go into it. Um, but short answer is Pittsburgh. This is where my, this is where my family, my extended family is from kind of my roots are all here. And, um, we're back here first spell. but yeah, I work with um, Chinese house church pastors. I um, have worked with China my whole adult life and uh, first got involved in ministry with China as a college student and have stayed in it for almost 20 years now. <laughs> and currently, um, my main work is to help elevate the voices of house church pastors in China um, seek to get them translated into English and other global languages so that those of us who aren't in China can hear what they're saying and, and benefit mm. from what the Lord is doing in their midst. And so I work with, it's called the Center for House Church Theology. And basically we work to publish these pastors and ministry leaders. And you have, you have edited a new book called Faithful Disobedience, Writings on Church and State from a Chinese House Church Movement. Can you tell us the story behind uh, Faithful Disobedience? Yeah. So this book <clears throat> is a collection of writings from several different prominent house church pastors, but mostly from a fellow named Wang Yi. Um, he is probably one of the most well-known house church pastors outside of China. And uh, part of that is because he was arrested very publicly. Um, it was a very, uh, very public kind of altercation, essentially, between the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, and, and Wang Yi and his church. That was in December of 2018. And um, that event 
had coverage really globally um, in the media, um, partially because he wrote an essay called uh, My Declaration of Faithful Disobedience. It was kind of um, a final statement on his positions um, in anticipation of his arrest. And when he was arrested, it was released to the public. And um, we helped translate that into English and and seek to have it published around the world. But he's he's a really um, excellent writer. Before he became a Christian, he was a legal scholar and a human rights advocate in China. He was kind of already a, a pretty public intellectual in the Chinese uh, online world and landscape. And then when he became a Christian, um, he just started thinking about all of these things from a very different angle and, um, but continued writing. And so we have, you know, a large quantity of his writings and, um, through a very long process, this project was many, many years, uh, in the making. Um, we eventually were able to bring it to publication and IVP, uh, worked with us on that. We're really thankful for them. And we're really excited to get it out there because um, not only is his story and his testimony really powerful, but I think just what he has to say about the church and the nature of the church and especially where we're headed and where we're going is really compelling mm -hmm. and, and worth reading and engaging. I think uh, probably most of us as, as Americans, when we think about the, the church in China, it, it's it just seems like such a, a foreign uh, landscape to us. We, mm -hmm. uh, we have our ideas about the house church and about persecution. I think you, th you suspect though, that there might be some similarities between what's happening or the, the landscape in China and that here, how, how is the climate for the church in China similar to that of uh, the U S yeah, well, I think, you know, even I, even I can fall victim to thinking, oh, you know, we're a world away. You know, we live in a, an, an open democratic society and my brothers and sisters in China are, are in a communist country. And, you know, I think because of just our history and, um, just even representations in media that can make us feel like we're really different from each other, or there's kind of this gulf that exists between us. But, you know, you know, I always like to say, well, on a, on a certain level, we have something in common because probably all of the essays in this book were written on a laptop, <laughs> maybe in a coffee shop <laughs> in an urban center. So, you know, at a minimum, there's just kind of the lived experience that we share. Uh, most of the world's cities have more in common than not at this point. Um, and I, I often like to think, well, you know, we still very quickly go to theology or, or essays written by um, Western theologians who lived, you know, 500, 600 years ago in a world that was pre-capitalistic, um, pre-democratic, <laughs> pre, um, uh, you know, still was very much kind of within the paradigms of Christendom, pretty digital, 
um, all these things. And that's a huge cultural difference. So even if geographically we have a lot in common with, um, you know, Edwards or Calvin or Luther, in terms of our actual life and the things that we're dealing with, um, the structures of our societies were quite different. So even if China is very geographically distant and for sure has many cultural differences, um, we still share quite a lot with them. They probably their biggest struggle in the church is not necessarily their government, it's materialism, you know, and and we who would look at their church to say today in the US and not say that's actually our struggle too. <laughs> it's just um the struggles mm. of kind of our materialistic um society. And that's those are all things that we have in common with Chinese pastors, even if they feel very different. Yeah, it's mm. it's interesting mm. because I feel like when I hear uh growing up, I remember hearing stories about the underground church in China. And it it really had this this image of like in my brain, I remember seeing a picture that a missionary brought back. They were working in a university and it was, uh, you know, students being baptized in a bathtub and like just mm -hmm. it just looked so like so foreign and different. But in, in reading your book, I almost got the sense that there's a ton of misconceptions that mm -hmm. Westerners may have about the Chinese uh, church. Can you, yeah. What are, mm -hmm. and what, mm -hmm. can you name those misconceptions and help us see them and, and help us to get a picture of like, this is what the church kind of looks like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, one of the biggest misconceptions about the Chinese house churches today is that they are, they are very secretive or very hidden. Um, they definitely don't, um, you know, you're not going to be walking down the street and see a billboard <laughs> for a house church. That being said, um, you know, most people in China today have met a Christian. Most people in China today, um, you know, if you talk to them, they'll say like, oh, yeah, I had a classmate who was a Christian or I have a relative who's a Christian. Um, the kind of the very conservative estimates are that there are 70 to 80 million Christians in China today. Larger kind of more bolder estimates place it over a hundred million. And that's a substantial fraction of the Chinese population at this point. So, um, you know, the house churches are trying to figure out what it means to be present in their society, to be public in their society but also still be careful. <laughs> um, and I would say they kind of really live out the, um, you know, why is the serpents innocent as doves? Um, they want people to know they're there. They aren't, you know, using like secret handshakes in order to find mm -hmm. a church. Um, but they also have to be very careful in, in what they do and, and how they make themselves known. But they're also often very large. Uh, another common misconception is that all house churches are in houses <laughs> or in people's private homes. When actually these days, um, many churches meet in venues that would feel very similar to, you know, the type of venues churches might meet in today in, in the Western world, such as 
um, you know, hotel ballrooms or hotel meet, you know, conference rooms or rented commercial space. Um, mm. These are all common um, places for churches to meet. They do still meet in private homes, depending on the local situation and, and the local needs. Um, but it's varied. It's it's not just small single homes um, that are trying to you know hide from their neighbors, <laughs> for example. And what what would you say is is the the house church movement or this? I don't know. Doug used the phrase the underground church, but it sounds like they're not so yeah. underground anymore. But what what would be the relationship of of the folks that you're working with? to the official churches in mm-hmm. China and then also to the government how how are they treated what how do they coexist what does that look like yeah well it has varied across the decades um when the communists first came to power in the 1950s um the relationship was very antagonistic um and essentially the the goal was to bring all religious life in China um, into the fold of the state church. And what birthed the house churches was really a refusal to enter into that. And in the 20th century, essentially, you almost had a half and half division of the Christian community, half going into the state churches and half mm. becoming what we call the house churches. Um, obviously, through the Cultural Revolution and through some of the darkest periods of China's history, um, that relationship was continued to be very contentious and, and very harmful. Um, but the the state churches also endured. Um, quite a lot of difficulty in the 20th century. Um, they themselves were closed down during the Cultural Revolution. And uh, thankfully, eventually, when China started to open back up, um, the house, ch- or sorry, the state churches were opened back up again. And I'd say through, um, I mean, really through the kind of end of the 20th century into the beginning of the 21st century, um, there was this open question of, of what the relationship of the house churches to the state church and to the government was going to be. It seemed like a much more open time. There was, it seemed mm-hmm. like there was a lot of kind of possibility for a gray area <laughs> to emerge. Um, and there were many people who were very hopeful that the house churches would find a path uh, to slowly become officially recognized uh, by the government in some capacity. Um, but beginning in 2018, a set of new religious regulations were introduced and began to be enforced. And today, essentially, um, the house churches are are entering into another time of more severe harassment and uh, persecution. I would say nothing so far compares to events that took place in the 20th century, and that's important to say. You know, we're not <laughs> we're not back um, where things were 50 years ago. 
but it is a very difficult time for the house churches right now. And um, many of the pastors I know um, have have experienced an increase in, in pressure on them and on their churches. What is that? Yeah, I mean, talk to us a little bit about what that what that pressure feels like. I mean, you know, we talk about Monday mornings here, you know, we think about mm-hmm. a hard Monday morning for a pastor in the West. It's like, you know, you get yelled at a parishioner, you know, by a parishioner or, you know, someone doesn't like your sermon. And I, I mean, I'm making light of it, but, but, you know, you know, yet we also have pastors who on Monday morning, like their anxiety and depression is through the roof. So like, what, yeah. what does a Monday morning look like for a house church pastor? Like what, what are some of the struggles that they're, they're coming up against in terms of emotionally, physically, mentally? Yeah. Well, I think they experience all of the things that American pastors experience on a Monday morning. You know, they, they're pastors just like any other pastor. So I always say to people, you know, the primary thing that they're struggling with on a weekly basis is all the things that you struggle with with your congregation, you know, um, they're not different in that, um, they deal with all of the same, um, fights and conflicts and, um, sin and brokenness within their churches that we deal with in our churches here. Persecution doesn't remove that. Um, but I would say they have obviously an added layer on top of that of, um, you know, just, is this going to be the week that their church is raided? Um, Hmm. so for them, I would say, you know, Monday mornings hard. Also, most of the Chinese I know Saturdays are really hard as well. And Saturday nights, because they're going into Sunday. And there's a just an unpredictability regarding worship on Sunday. Often, if a raid happens on a church, it happens during the service mm-hmm. on Sunday morning. And so I was talking to uh, someone I work with. He's Chinese, but he's here in the U.S. And he said, um, Saturday night, U.S. time is the hardest time of the week for him because that's mm-hmm. when he starts getting messages. Um, that's our Saturday night is China Sunday morning. So he said he always starts getting messages of friends that he knows who um, have been arrested or their church has been raided um, on Saturday night. And it's always hard for him going into Sunday as he realizes what's happening uh, among the churches in China. So I think, um, you know, it, it's it's always a kind of balancing act thinking about it, right? Of um, as a whole, they're struggling with all the same things we struggle right. with. At the same times, we're struggling with it, but they have this extra added layer on top mm-hmm. of it. And I think um, probably one of the most just challenging things for me that I've heard them talk about is that. Uh, they talk about time, uh, times when they are arrested or being interrogated as a time for um, themselves to repent of as pastors. 
Mm. And I always think that's such a um, ah, spirit-filled response mm. to being attacked as a pastor, you know, to um, be so grounded in your understanding of the gospel that when you come under attack, um, your response is to repent of your own idols, um, of comfort. Mm. And, um, you know, some of them will even go as far as to say, it's a time to repent of idolizing the American life, Mm. (laughs) you know, and Mm. idolizing the comfort and the success that we, we talk about because, um, to live with Christ is to experience the things that Christ Mm. experienced. Do they, I wonder, uh, I think the way that the the Chinese house church has always been talked about here is with a measure of reverence for the way that they have endured persecution. And I think uh, it's funny to hear you talk about them looking at us uh, with some kind of, of I, you didn't use the word envy, but, you know, of idolizing the church in America, whereas we look at them and say, you are models for us of endurance under persecution. I wonder, do they know how, how it is that we generally think of them and are inspired by them? Is that something they're aware of? (laughs) You know, no one's asked me that before. I don't think they do. And I think that's Mm. one of the best things about them. Mm. You know, I think everyone. So in my work, I've I'm formulating my thoughts because really no one has asked me this <laughs> before. It's a great question. So I think um, you know, they have a really just a gift of humility, you know? And mm-hmm. I think um they I I ha- it has part of why it's taken me a long time to be able to do the work that I'm doing now of seeing their writings translated and published for the rest of the world is really because they, I wouldn't say they see themselves as ready to speak to the world. (laughs) Mm. Um, They kind of still see themselves in many ways as, as uh, young and they're very aware of their own failings mm-hmm. and their own need for the gospel mm-hmm. and their own need to repent. But I also think from, from my perspective, that's why we need to hear from them. Mm-hmm. You know, I actually yeah. think because they feel a hesitancy to position themselves as leaders in the global church or Mm. a hesitancy to say, yeah, come to us and learn from us. Mm. I actually think that makes them extremely valuable voices in Mm -hmm. the, you know, global communion of saints, because I think they, um, they have a very fresh understanding of the gospel in a lot of ways. And it's encouraging to hear from them on that. Yeah, so we we probably don't want to tell them how much we admire them. (laughs) (laughs) Which is which is weird to say. But I would say they are deeply encouraged when they know people are paying Mm. attention to them. Not in a sense of kind of venerating them, but I think Oh yeah. They often feel very isolated. Um Mm. part of that is the nature of their, 
you know, con like their country and, and just even things mm. like, um, China's internet regulations and how difficult it is for them to mm. communicate outside of China. Um, the Chinese churches really long to situate themselves within the bigger picture of global Christianity, um, mm. both historically and the sense that I think they are trying to wrestle through, you know, what their church tradition is, where they fit in kind of the, the mm. map of uh, historical theology. And then also, I think just even, can, you know, not just historically, but um, today, you know, globally, they also really desire to have better relationships with the global church. One of the distinctives of really the state church and just a lot of China's desire to regulate religious life within China is a certain sense of um, limiting relationship with the outside world um, for the sake of a kind of national identity or, or a national identity of, of religion, <laughs> you know, a national expression of religion. And so for many house church pastors, engaging the global church is, is extremely important in their understanding of um, the church not just being about China and not just being about propping up China's identity, but being about something bigger than China, being something mm -hmm. global and historic. I, I, we, I, I do want to hear from you on ways that we can connect with and support the church in China. But the, the idea of, as you spoke about their humility, uh, I'm thinking about American pastors and our kind of, and, and this is a stereotype and I know it's not everybody, but there's this kind of need to build a platform yeah. and to to be known and and I I just love that idea of humility as as a core component of a pastoral identity. I'm wondering as you've journeyed with these pastors and you've observed the house church movement in China, what else do you think that we can learn from them in mm. terms of of how they how they exist and mm. how they yeah, what what ought we be paying attention to? Two things come to mind. I think the first thing uh, really comes down to the question of our highest loves and our allegiances in this life. Um, they, the kind of, I mean, the conflict that the churches are in um, with the authorities really comes down in so many ways to this question of, you know, who is the king <laughs> and um, where is our ultimate allegiance? And because of that, who's the head of the church, you know? And um, there's just a lot, I think, that we can learn from them. I, I don't think we have, um, you know, in, a, in our country today, we don't have an equivalent of the Chinese Communist Party <laughs> trying to, um, you know, garner our love and allegiance. But we all have things in our lives that are competing for our highest love, you know, and our churches have things that are competing for our highest love. And, um, you know, 
that's something that when we when we read what they have to say, even if they're talking about um, the CCP, which we can't relate to, there's so much that um, we can relate to. And I find myself deeply convicted on this topic every time I'm reading their work. I think connected to that, you know, they really believe that the church is the best way they can serve their cities. Mm. Um, life in China is difficult often. Um, there's a lot of wealth that's been generated in China, but it is, um, there's still a lot of poverty. There's still a lot of difficulty. Um, there are many systems that are very broken in China. And so, um, they really have a heart for their cities. Um, they really have a heart for their people and for their cities. And they just are deeply convicted that, um, the church is the best gift that they can give to their cities. And I also find that to be very convicting because, you know, I think, man, how much do I really believe that? <laughs> you know, how much do I really believe that the church is the best thing I can do for my city? Um, and then I think the kind of parallel question to that is, you know, are our churches the best things we can give to our city? You know, and um, there's a lot to mull over and chew over on that. Um, but I find it really inspiring to see the ways that they they look at the the difficulties of China and they're just very motivated um, to bring the church to their people. <laughs> I feel like there's, I don't know. It's interesting because when you know we're we're his, we're having this conversation about <laughs> people that don't have platforms, you know, people that mm -hmm. are getting published because others uh, like yourself have just seen the gift that this is and the the need to hear voices that aren't trying to build platforms. And yet, there's also this like this part of me that's just feeling so encouraged to like get back to work like on Monday like for the sake of the mm -hmm. kingdom and for mm -hmm. the sake of my city. And, and I don't know, I, I just, I just get this feeling that like, there is such, there's such beauty in the, in the really small expressions of the kingdom that happen all around. Mm -hmm. And like, mm -hmm. I don't know, I, I think I'm just, I'm, I'm sitting here with this question of like, you know, if, if we were to have a, a Chinese house church pastor on, how, like what what do you sense he would say or she would say to uh, a group of pastors gathered this morning i think they would say it's worth it mm. <laughs> um jesus is worth it i think um by and large no one goes into pastoring in china who hasn't counted the cost, you know? Um, I don't know any pastor in China who hasn't suffered for it somehow, you know? Mm. And, but I think they, they, they really would look at you and say it's worth it, mm. <laughs> you know? Mm. Um, Jesus is worth it and his kingdom is worth it. And we should be greatly encouraged because of that, you know? Mm. 
And I think that when we lose sight of that, that's when we um, put additional burdens <laughs> onto ourselves, you know. Um, I've been in meetings. <laughs> I was um, speaking at a conference with, I had a, um, a sister from the house church with me. And we had a Q&A after she talked. She she gave her testimony of her, her time in jail. And um, we had a Q&A and someone in the room asked her what her word to the American church was. And without, I'm not joking, she told them all that she prays the American church will learn to suffer. <laughs> and mm. I just was like, oh, that was a very <laughs> bold thing. To say to a room of Americans, so, mm -hmm. um, but I think the thing is when they say that they don't mean it in any other way than than they really believe that that's how we're brought into deeper fellowship with Christ, mm -hmm. you know? and they don't mean that you know we have to go out and you know do weird things to make ourselves suffer. You know, they have a theology of suffering that really would say all Christians suffer, whether that's persecution or whether that's dealing with a church. <laughs> Sometimes just being in a church feels mm -hmm. like suffering <laughs> because it's people and it's relationships, whether it's physical suffering, you know, our Lord and Master's life on earth was marked by suffering. And they mm. are very bold in saying, well, quoting Matthew, you know, where it said, you know, the servant does not rise above the master, nor the mm -hmm. student above the teacher. And if our, our master and our teacher suffered in this life, then we need to be prepared for that to be our life experience as well, you know. But there's joy in it because we're fellowshipping with Christ in his sufferings and we're walking with mm -hmm. him and he's with us. We're united to him in those things, you know. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I think that, um, you know, when we hear from our brothers and sisters, you know, it's it's I I'm untested myself to largely on in terms of you know I've never been persecuted so I pray that if I ever was I would endure like they do but mm. there are things in my life that feel like suffering or are suffering and it's a great encouragement to me to see them count the cost and to think yeah it is worth it in my own life here mm. today it's worth it Jesus is worth it Man, if that doesn't encourage you on a Monday, I don't, I don't know what what would. Maybe you should get out of ministry if you're not encouraged. Um, yeah, Hannah, I feel like my my mind is just spinning with a thousand other other things. But um, yeah, I, I guess I guess what I what I would love to maybe just play in for just a few minutes is my sense is like you know in America we have such an individualistic world where where when we think of suffering we think so personal right like we don't necessarily mm -hmm. think communal suffering and so yes. does that yeah. play a big part in in the theology of suffering that is being developed like as we speak within the chinese church absolutely <laughs> um 
Yeah. Uh, and a, a lot of our future projects will continue to wrestle with these questions, but I think it really comes down to their developing theology of the church, you know, ecclesiology, and how that connects with their their theology of suffering. Um, it's interesting because I think um, so much of their suffering, China's not trying to tell individuals not to believe in Jesus. <laughs> you know, there's no um, agenda you know, by the CCP to regulate what individuals believe in their private lives. You know, the question is the church and the church's presence in society, you know, and so therefore suffering, at least the political suffering that they experience will always have a corporate identity to it. You know, it's about who they are as a people. It's not about who they are as individuals, you know. And so I think a lot of what they're developing in their theology of suffering is, yeah, it's definitely, it's related to this question of the church and the kingdom of God and how are we um, going somewhere together <laughs> and working in our cities for that, not just how, how am I as an individual, um, you know, being attacked by the state <laughs> or something, you know. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot there that I think, you know, what well one of the interesting things in my work is, you know, for them I think a lot of this uh uh it's it's kind of still subtext because it's very culturally specific. <laughs> so um when I read their work, I know they're thinking about um corporate suffering, the body of Christ, the church. Um, and I'm trying to think about how do we help highlight that in their writings so that because I think when an, an, an kind of individualist American reads it, we're very good at reading our experience mm -hmm. onto other mm -hmm. people's writings, yeah. you know, and, and, yeah. and reading it as individuals rather than as uh, the church or as a group. And so um, that's kind of one of our challenges with the centers is helping to not just translate directly, but also explain um, the context and, and the meanings that um, you might have to excavate a little bit there. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, I can imagine it is a tall task, but I don't know. I just, I wanted to pause and just say thank you for the work that you're putting in i i i took a one of the first one of one of the most influential classes i took in seminary was we read a book um called uh i think it was called asian theology or something like that mm. and it was one of the first times that i recognized and uh that i recognized that i have only listened to a lot of european and western mm -hmm. voices and um, mm -hmm. I think about there was another book recently that came out a few years back called The Slow Work of God. Um, mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. was uh, anyways, all that to say, it just it feels like the work of of helping these unheard voices be heard. I My, my hope is that it becomes a deep encouragement to to pastors in the U.S. and to pastors in Brazil and to pastors all over mm -hmm. the world, because I think that is also the thing. It's like the, you know, the church is 
center is is not America. Like it's it's the kingdom, and the mm-hmm. kingdom is all mm-hmm. over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, thank you so much for joining us. Could you leave our listeners with a benediction or a, or a prayer or a blessing? Yeah. <clears throat> I pray that as you are weary in your day, as the burdens feel heavy, um, that you would know just the joy of Christ and the joy of counting the cost, that he is worth it, that there is nothing that this life could take from you um, that would not be worth following Jesus. I pray that you would be lifted up into his presence um, every day and that through his spirit um, you would dwell in your union with Christ and you would know just the goodness of his love for you Um, and for the church that you are not alone. There is a communion of saints today around the world um, who stand with you and are walking with you um, into the kingdom. In all of this, we look to Christ. Amen. Amen, amen and amen. Amen.